Okay, Liz, here's some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs, you cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems, and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash hollywood. NetSuite.com slash Hollywood. NetSuite.com slash Hollywood. Hi, everyone. This is just a note to say that this episode was recorded right before the WGA went out on strike. We will see you on the picket line. Hi, and welcome to Happier in Hollywood, the podcast about how to be happier, healthier, saner, more creative, more successful, and more productive in a backbiting, superficial, chaotic, unpredictable, fundamentally insane world, especially this week, it seems like. I'm Sarah Fain, a TV writer and producer living in Ojai, right outside of LA, and with me is my high school friend and writing partner, Liz. That's me, Liz Craft. On this podcast, we talk about being writers in Hollywood, how we balance a career and friendship, and how to survive the war of attrition that is life in Los Angeles. And it is time for our Spring Listener Questions episode part two. We had so many great questions last week, we couldn't answer them all. So we're rolling them over into this week, and we'll try to be a little faster. (laughs) Yes. So thank you all for these amazing questions. We love hearing from you. We love the questions. Also, Sarah, I want to remind everyone that my sister Gretchen Rubin's new book is out. It's called Life in Five Senses. And drumroll, it made the New York Times bestseller list. Yes. Number four. So, yes, very exciting. That is awesome. Congratulations. Yay. And then, Liz, we also wanted to mention that the Fantasy Island season finale is on May 8th. We love this episode so much. Yes, starring Jason Priestley. You know how we talked about making blue eyes pop in the color correction (laughs) episode? He has crazy awesome blue eyes. So that was something we did in this episode. May 8th on Fox. Okay, Sarah, let's dive into our questions. The first one is from Kristen. She says, what is your process for revisions and rewrites? I love the point you make that writing is rewriting, but I have such a hard time figuring out the best way to tackle revision in an effective way that also feels fun. Well, I agree the feeling fun part can be difficult when it comes to writing or rewriting. I know. I was like, if if feeling fun is a qualification, I don't know that we succeed at that always. Well, our process, we pretty much do the same thing every time, right? Which is we talk through the notes, whether they're notes we're giving each other or whether they're notes we're getting from a producer or an executive, We talk through them at length in a general way and then in a specific way. 
And then usually for our first round of rewriting, we divide stuff up and tackle it individually. I mean, going to the fun part, I would say the talking about it part can be fun. It's certainly intellectually challenging. And I do think that's part of why we like being a team is that we can really like talk these things out. Yes. Well, here's what's fun with a rewrite. If you get a note or have an idea that you know is going to vastly improve the script, That's fun. Yes. It's really fun when you go, oh, that's it. Then suddenly it's like the code falling into place. You (laughs) you see how to improve. What's really hard is when you don't know what you're trying to do. Yeah. You don't understand a note. That's very difficult. Or if you don't think a note is a good note, but you still want to try and meet it in some way. That's hard too. So that's pretty much our process. And then once we've done a rewrite, we also are always going back over the notes, again, whether they're ours or someone else's, and double-checking that we've addressed everything in a way that we like... And we will always say, is this worse, same, or better? And we try not to turn anything in unless that particular part of the script is better. Occasionally, it might be the same. We definitely won't hand in something that we think is worse. Right. Although the most dreaded word, I think, in revisions is lateral. As soon as someone says lateral, you're like, oh, shit. Yes. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I'd rather it be worse. And obviously, I'd much rather it be better. But lateral is like a punch in the gut. Oh, my gosh. Sarah, what? And I know we're trying to be short, but there was a script, the one that ended up becoming um, Bad Sisters starring Sharon Horgan that we had absolutely nothing to do with. But we wrote a draft and we got notes from the head of development, et cetera. And we did a huge rewrite, enormous, page one, totally took it apart and put it back together. And the response we got was, having read this, I prefer the other, which is, that did not go well. No, no. But that was also an example of a show that was, you know, being done in a way that it was not meant to be done. Yes, it, it, it was doomed on, it needed to be on streaming. <laughs> yes, for sure. Okay, then Emily has a question. What advice do you have for folks trying to sell a show? What materials are most helpful? Deck, pilot, Bible. What do green writers and producers need to know about pitching to production companies slash studios and negotiating? Oh, that's a big question. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I'll say is most shows, especially now, are only going to sell if they have what we call auspices attached. And the bigger, the better. So, you know, if you have Shonda Rhimes attached, that would be incredible. And that would be a good chance of a sale. If you have a producer-level writer attached, not as good of a chance. Or like a truly green writer who is just coming and trying to sell a show. Well, I almost think that's impossible now to just come here and create something wonderful and sell it to somebody. If there's someone out there who's done that, please let us know. But I I just don't think things work that way right now, which sucks. But really the first thing you would do if you're truly a green writer, yeah, is try to get a showrunner attached, I would say, or an actor attached or, you know, somebody really notable who can make your project seem legitimate. Because until it 
does have a certain amount of legitimacy, the, the people are just just are not going to take it seriously. But a way to do that could be a deck or a written pitch. Like we definitely have had a lot of pitch decks sent to us. I don't think we've ever done a project though from a pitch deck. We have not. Yeah, I mean, really, if you're green, what you need to do is like start your career. You know, yeah. you need to get a job, whether it's as an assistant, you know, you need to have your writing group, you need to write specs, you need to, you know, it's a whole process. I mean, I think people think, well, I have a great idea for a show, but almost everyone has a great idea for a show. It's really execution and what are networks looking for? And again, who's attached? I mean, there's so many things that go into it beside a good idea. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about Matt Weiner had the script for Mad Men for, I think, 12 years before it became Mad Men. And in the interim, he, I think, spent nine years working on The Sopranos. So then he was Matt Weiner from The Sopranos. Well, that's a lot different. It's really hard to sell a show. Well, I also think there's a danger in trying to sell a show as a truly green person, because there are many, many ways of getting shoved out of the process. We've heard so many stories about someone who has an idea. This is usually producers, less so with writers, but they're coming in and suddenly like the machine takes over and they're the one who gets shoved out. Yes. It happens all the time. So until you have a certain amount of legitimacy and credits, that's that's a dangerous thing. But one thing I will say, if the if if you are in a position to pitch to whomever, you've got to sell the show in the first 90 seconds. Yes. Your pitch can be 15 minutes, could be 20 minutes. But if it's if they don't love it in 90 seconds, they're probably not gonna love it minute 12. True. So make it sellable in 90 seconds. And then Sarah Michelle said, do you know why TV has moved to seasons that are so much shorter, even for network shows? I miss having 20-ish episodes to watch of my favorite shows, especially the sitcoms. Everything new seems to be closer to 10 episodes. Seems like this just makes writers have to find so many more shows to pay the bills. Is this being driven by the streamers? Michelle, you have basically just summed up all of the problems in the industry right now that are potentially leading us to a strike. We'll see. Although by the time this airs, we will either be probably on strike or not. I guess the future is unknown. So there's a lot of reasons why shows have shorter seasons. Various, okay? One may be uh, you want a big actor and a big actor doesn't want to do 20 episodes. They want to do 10 episodes. Okay, that's one reason. Another reason is for streamers who, who are subscriber-driven, if they have a great 10 episodes, they can get as many subscribers as they can with a great 20 episodes. And yet 10 episodes cost half of what 20 episodes would cost. So financially, it makes much more sense for them to do eight or 10 episodes, some things are even six episodes, because they can basically make the same amount of money. Unlike writers who cannot. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is why we are where we are. And I think broadcast also, you know, has started, like certain shows still go a lot of episodes, especially procedurals. But I think they found it just for them makes more financial sense to do shorter seasons, gives them a chance to try out new shows, which then if they're a big hit, they can order more of the next season. So often you'll see something starts as eight episodes, but then if it's a huge hit, maybe it'll go to 15 the next year or something like that. Right. Although, of course, what it used to be is you pick up the original 13 episodes and then yes. you 
get a nine episode pickup if the show is doing well. That just seems to yes. no longer exist. Well, you know, that is, for instance, happened with So Help Me Todd. That's a show on CBS that was a big hit this season. Someone, really great guy we know, created it. And they had a third, I believe, a 13 order episode, uh, episode order, and then got the back nine or something around there. I don't know if he actually got to 22, but it was old school pickup. So it happens, but not very often. Now it's notable if it happens. Yes. And then Kat asks, I've been curious about whether or not Sarah being a solo parent has affected choices you've had to make as a team, particularly earlier in your careers. Presumably, if you're between jobs, Liz can lean on Adam's income for a bit, but Sarah doesn't have that option. Have you ever had to take a job or pass on a job because of Sarah's financial needs? And how did you discuss that as a team, or did you discuss it before Sarah chose to have Violet? Hmm, interesting question. Well, I mean, we definitely think about it for both of us. Well, that's the thing. I feel like being a team affects our decisions much more than me being yeah. a solo parent. Right, because we split our income, so we're yeah. both making half. <laughs> yeah. I think it, it impacted us, and it wasn't really being a solo parent. Again, it was being a team more earlier in our career. Right, because um, we weren't parents earlier in our career. Right, and I think that what it did is it probably being a team drove us more toward broadcast than streaming for the very reason that it would be more episodes and tends to pay more and be a little more stable. Mm -hmm. And... When we were on The Shield, for instance, which was an amazing show that we loved, but because it was on FX and it was a certain number of episodes, that's when we wrote our two YA novels because right. we needed to supplement the income. Yeah. But yeah, we, I mean, I don't know if it's just having grown up together, but we sort of just approach as we approach and yeah. we make things based on financial, but also creative, also what we think will be good for our career long term. And it sort of all plays a part. Yeah. I will say it's much more expensive for me being a solo parent because I'm constantly yes. paying for a tremendous amount of yes. childcare. <laughs> yes. It is much like when we make a pilot, for instance, and have to go away, it costs you a lot of money that it does yeah. not cost me because I can leave Jack with Adam. Absolutely. Yes. But I do think, Sarah, I mean, I feel it, it's got to be kind of scary to be the one person who it all falls on. So I feel for you. <laughs> It is, but you know what? Still worth it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Liz, coming up, we have a question about navigating new friendships in Hollywood, but first this break. Liz, there is nothing I love more than having a delicious meal that I didn't have to cook, which is why I have been getting no prep, no mess meals from Factor. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Last night, I had had blackened salmon with broccoli and with cauliflower rice. It was so delicious. It was the perfect dinner. 
Head to factormeals.com slash HIH50 and use code HIH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code HIH50 at factormeals.com slash HIH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. Okay, this comes from another Sarah without an H. She says, how do you navigate new friendships in Hollywood? Do you always feel like the other shoe is going to drop in terms of people asking for something? When do you know it's safe to let your guard down? You know what's funny? I don't think we ever think about this. I agree, except this. it reminded me of this hilarious <laughs> experience I had. Back when I used to date, when that was like a thing that I would Mm -hmm. do, I was at brunch with this guy (laughs) who had not mentioned any interest in being an actor. And we were showrunners at this point. He never, like nothing, Mm. you know, it was like an internet thing, never mentioned that he was an aspiring actor. And then suddenly I'm at brunch with this guy and he's like, yes, well, I'm thinking of moving into acting. And I'm like, okay, that's it. There we go. (laughs) This will be our last date. (laughs) Here is what I will say. I think we do not think of relationships this way. I'm never like thinking someone is befriending me to try to get something, although I think it does probably happen. There have been times when you and I have made friends and realized after that fact that, oh, that was a transactional relationship. That was not a real friendship. And I don't know why you and I both never see it until after the person has drifted away because they no longer find us useful. But yeah, it happens and it makes me really sad. But I don't think about it day to day. No. So that's good. Luckily, we have each other. And we have a lot of friends who are just genuine friends. So we're covered. So many people we know are already in this industry. So, you know... Yeah. We're just all going down the same road. We're as likely to want help from them. I mean, most <laughs> of our friends, it's you know, we'd want something from them. So <laughs> it is the nature of the business that there are many transactional relationships. Yes. Okay, Liz, this next question is from Elizabeth. We had a Sarah, now we have an Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. She says, I'm a fiction writer who is expecting my first child later this year. I heard Liz talking on Happier about how motherhood cured her writer's block, and I wondered what other professional changes you encountered after becoming parents. How did you handle the transition to parenthood and your writing careers? What advice would you give a fellow writer and 
first-time mom. It's hard to have a baby, certainly, and be a writer. You know, my first thing was be prepared to breastfeed or pump or have bottles everywhere. <laughs> yes. Well, the biggest thing I think for us or for me, and I think I speak for you as well, that changed with the parenthood and being a writer is our we lost our willingness to be at work until midnight. Yeah. For much of our career, we would not think twice about being at work till midnight, and we often were. I mean, our lives were at the job. That was yeah. where we spent our time. That was where we had our recreation. You know, that's where we ate dinner. And once we were parents, I mean, the gauntlet came down on that. Yeah, I think the main thing, as you're saying, is boundaries. We just suddenly had boundaries, which we yeah. had never had before. <laughs> and it worked for us not to have them, and it's worked for us to have them. And I think it's really hard because we all know that, look, the culture has changed. I don't think writers are expected to be at work the way we were. So mm -hmm. hopefully people are, although in comedy they may be. Yeah. But I think you have to really... Set those boundaries. And look, the thing I would recommend above all else, and I know I've, everybody says this, is try to sleep. Because if you can't aren't sleeping, you can't do anything else. I was talking to a new mom yesterday who, you know, she said if she can get an hour of writing in a day, she feels like she's one and she's a novelist. So you got to sleep. Take care of yourself first. Although that's completely hard. I mean, when you have a brand new baby, it's like you're the last thing it's you think so of. It's so hard. I know. I know. But you try. <laughs> but that's why, yeah. But that's why I'm saying understand that you're not going to be able to write if you're not sleeping. Yeah. So I would prioritize sleep over writing, although it depends on your job and if you're a novelist or a journalist or whatever. Give yourself some grace. Yeah. Ask for help. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Elaine says, when you interview guests for your podcast, do they get paid? If so, is it a large sum? I've always wondered that. No. The very easy answer. We we do not pay guests. If they have something to promote, we we try to vigorously promote it, but we do not pay anybody. Yes, and when we are guests, we don't get paid. It's something that you do get just paid. to build relationships and and yeah, promote something if you're trying to promote something, but yeah, it's not a there's no financial incentive. And then Jayon asked, I recently listened to Jeanette McCurdy's book, I'm Glad My Mom Died. It was absolutely great, captivating story, dark humor, bonus points for Jeanette's reading for the audiobook. But listening to it, I couldn't help but wonder how difficult it must be for child actors to survive in this industry, even if they don't have similar mothers to hers. <laughs> <laughs> So here are my questions. One, do you think hers is an extreme example or in your observations, do most child actors go through similar things like ambitious parents missing out on a childhood? And two, would you ever encourage your children, Jack and Violet, to pursue a career as child actors or actors in general? The, the answer to the second one is absolutely easy, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, we would not. Probably because of the answer to one, which is, it is very hard to be a child actor. You do miss out on a lot. Now, is that to say some child actors have amazing lives, amazing experiences, go on to be successful adult actors or adults something completely different? Yes, but it is not easy. We happen to be working with someone right now on a project who was a child actor who has an amazing life as an adult, but it is tough 
you really miss out on sort of, you know, what we would call the quote-unquote normal childhood stuff. School is completely different. Your summers, you'd be working. It's just hard. And then there's so much rejection. I mean, yeah, I think it's weird to be an eight-year-old and put yourself up for something and not get it and not get it and not get it because, you know, most things you don't get. So I think it's really hard. Here's what I would say, though. If Jack was desperately passionate and wanted to do it, I might consider it. If it completely came from him, probably not, but I would at least consider it. Luckily, he has zero interest. <laughs> Violet has interest, but not in the in, in a realistic way. She's like, if you have a child character, can I play that character? And it's like, no. Right. <laughs> Because you don't actually know how to act. But I also wanted to thank you for bringing up Jeanette McCurdy's book because that book is so excellent. I mean, just truly wonderful. And you're right. Her her reading of the audiobook is amazing. It blew me away. She tells a story that, yes, it is an extreme example. Obviously, most parents aren't as toxic as her mother was. But it's hard for everybody. It's hard. And the parents have to give so much. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. The parents have to spend so much time driving their kids around. It's easier now with video auditions, obviously, that you can see why they get caught up because their own life becomes subsumed with their kids' acting career. And so then that's how they're getting validation. And it's understandable because they're putting so much into it. So it's just difficult. But thank goodness for child actors because every project needs them and they're super talented and usually extremely professional. Yes. All right, Sarah, coming up, we have a question about our partnership. But first, this break. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, Sarah, this question comes from Michelle. She says, you seem to be well-matched in the way that the two of you approach your projects. My question is, has it always been this way? Have the two of you ever discovered that you had very different levels of enthusiasm for or commitment to one of your projects? 
If so, how did you deal with that? And what advice would you have for a creative person when they discover that the people they're working with probably don't have the same level of commitment to a project as they do? Asking for a friend, and by friend, I mean me. (laughs) That's funny. Well, I would say we try only to do things that we're both extremely enthusiastic about. I think there have been times when one of us is more enthusiastic than the other. Yes, but usually that's something that just kind of gets dropped along the way. It's not even a like, okay, let's not do this. It's more just like it doesn't keep entering the conversation. Right. Or the other thing that can happen is if there's a project, I'm thinking of the selection. Okay, that's yeah. a, that's a pilot we made twice, never went to air. <laughs> I was extremely passionate about doing it. Yes. but And then you became just as passionate once we started. Right. There was another script we wrote a few years ago that you were extremely passionate about that took place in Miami that I was like <laughs> much okay. less passionate about, but I yeah. understood why you wanted to do it. And as we worked on it, I fell in love with it just as much as you did because working on something, it becomes something you love. Well, and also I think if uh, in either case, one of us had kept talking about something and the other person didn't become engaged pretty early on in the process, neither of them would have gone as far as they did. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So... And if you discover the other people aren't as, you know, that's hard. I mean, we always say volunteers, not recruits. I mean, you can't make someone be enthusiastic. So my advice would be to do as much as you can without them or even potentially move on from them. Yes. Okay, then Ruth has a question. Once you become a WGA member beyond paying annual dues, is there any amount of writing credit units you need to acquire each year to maintain membership or once you're in it, is it for life? It's a fairly complicated answer. Yes, it is a unit system. The short answer, at least for drama writers, is one script fee a year will keep your membership active. But I don't know about like comedy writers or feature writers. Yeah, and then it's it, you build up points. And so if you have a year where you don't work, you can use points for your health care but you can only do that a certain number of years until you have to then earn a certain amount of money. So it's a bit complicated, but there is a way where you have a little bit of a cushion if you don't work for a period of time. Yeah, so if you really want the full answer, you can Google WGA, how to become a member, and it'll really take you through the the real process. (laughs) All right. Finally, Sarah and Dira asks, I was wondering when you knew you were ready to become a showrunner. And when you became a showrunner, did you have the skill set you needed to do the job well, or did you learn on the job? Well, we knew we were ready to become showrunners when we were showrunners and it was working. I mean, it's like, I don't think you know until you're in it. It's a, really is a learn on the job kind of thing. There's things you can do to help prepare yourself, like spend a lot of time in rooms, spend time in editing, spend time in casting, spend time on set, but it's not the same as being in charge, being the one who has to hit all the deadlines. So I would say you you don't know when you're ready. You're never really ready. You just have to dive in. A lot of times when you're a new showrunner, you're put with a more veteran person like you and I um, worked with Scott Gemmel, who is one of our favorite people on the planet when we did Women's Murder Club, and he was the perfect person because 
he was there, but he really let us run the show. So we always had him, but we were in charge. And that was really great. But you just have to go for it. But what you really have to understand is you you can't just be over budget and you can't be late. Just keep right. those two things in mind and the rest will follow. Yes. And then did we have the skill set we needed to do the job well? That's an interesting question right now because we are at a time when a lot of people, because of these mini rooms and a lot of other weird things in the industry right now, are not getting all of the knowledge that they need in order to run shows. So they're they're kind of like being thrown into a showrunner position without knowing all of these skills. We really built up a tremendous skill set before we were showrunners. Many people yes. don't have the opportunity to do that now. Now, which is, you know, really is sucks. Yeah, and that is something that, that we're grappling with sort of as an industry. All right, Liz, that is it for this episode of Happier in Hollywood. Thank you for all the questions. Keep them coming. You can always email us or send us a voice memo to happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and please follow us if you haven't already. Thank you to our executive producer, Chuck Reed, and thanks to everyone at Sancola Sound. You can follow them on Instagram at Sancola Sound. Thanks to everyone at Cadence 13. And as always, thank you to Gretchen Rubin. Once again, a New York Times best-selling author, Happier <laughs> in Hollywood is part of the Onward Project. Listen to the other Onward Project podcasts, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, Side Hustle School, and Everything Happens with Kate Bowler. Get in touch. I'm on Instagram at Fain and Liz is at Liz Craft. We also have a Facebook group. Search for Happier in Hollywood on Facebook to join in on the conversation. Until next week, I'm Liz Craft. And I'm Sarah Fain. Thanks for joining us. It's a fun job. And we enjoy it. Sarah, did you fill out your WGA survey about when and where you want to pick it? I did. I, like, just my anxiety went up like 5,000%. But yes, yes, I have made my preferences. That's really what sent my stomach into knots. Yeah. From the Onward Project.